Welcome to the Eater Upsell, a part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a show about food and restaurants and people that make food and people that eat food and people that talk about food. I am one of your hosts, Greg Morabito. With me, as always, is your other host, Helen Rosner. And on today's episode of the show, we are chatting with Jenny Britton Bauer, who is the founder of Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream. She has this crazy brain for making different awesome ice cream flavors. She's built this huge company. She has got a lot of thoughts about politics. Her company had some trouble with a Listeria recall, but she weathered it, keeps growing. She's a really interesting entrepreneur, and I can't wait to chat with her. Before we get into that, I just wanted to remind you that if you really dig what we're doing here on the Eater Upsell, we would be so grateful if you would subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the podcasting platform of your choice. And if you really dig what you're hearing, Helen and I would love it if you would give us a a review and a rating on iTunes. We're going to jump into our chat with Jenny Brittenbauer, but actually, before that, we're bringing back something we used to do on earlier episodes of this program, which is a little thing we like to call shooting the shit, where Helen and I just kind of talk about whatever's on our mind. So right now, I'm going to read a press release that just landed in my inbox, a weird press release, to Helen. Do you ever get one of those press releases where you read it and it just kind of sounds like it's being coming from the mouth of like, um, you know, like what were they called? Like a Rococo fop, like the person with the powdered <laughs> wig and like, you know, the white face that is like with like a frilly garb that is kind of like gesturing at your feet with their sort of floppy hands, like you know, an obsequiously manipulative court jester. Yes. Yes. Uh, like I got this one last week. From this restaurant called the Charter Oak, and this is a big follow-up to the restaurant at Meadowood, three Michelin star place in Napa Valley. This is their casual thing. It's like their casual, more casual thing, and it starts uh, here. Here, here's the opening part of it. It says, "Dear friends, it is with gratitude and excitement that we have now opened the doors to our restaurant, the Charter Oak, in the heart of Napa Valley." <laughs> in downtown St. Helena. We are humbled by your support throughout the years. (laughs) We will continue to look forward to welcoming you to the restaurant at Meadowood. I like how you became both sort of old and French. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, you know, I think I got this press release also, and it didn't occur to me how extraordinary it was until I heard you reading it. It's kind of this weird formality, but it's like the super like, we want you to come in and experience our hospitality achievement and witness it. But they frame it in this way where like they can't come right out and say, we're doing something incredibly awesome that we're crazy proud about. Right. You should come pay for it. They have to flip it around and say, we have done all of this for you. We love you, guests and potential guests. We live for you. We wake up every morning with you on our minds, and we fall asleep every night with your name on our tongues, and we have crafted a temple to your happiness. Yeah, it's yeah, it's sort of formalizing or institutionalizing like that this is like an art form of of like serving a guest and and it's it's not just it's not just a a career. It's like a it's a whole it's a calling. Speaking of completely blockbuster press releases, I when you when you mentioned crazy press releases, I didn't actually think you were going to be talking about Charter Oak. I thought you were going to be talking about Vespertine. Oh, man. The most yeah. recent press release from Vespertine, which has not yet opened but will be opening shortly in California, in, in L.A., um, 
was announcing that reservations are now available, this press release was so over the top, so just like completely spaceship to Mars that Hillary Dixler, our, our colleague at Eater, wrote a blog post on Eater.com about the press release. Like, we don't do that. We don't cover press releases. We cover restaurants. But this this press release is bonkers. Um, Vespertine is a restaurant from a, a chef named Jordan Kahn, who I hope he forgives us for, for what I'm about to do, because I would love to have him on the podcast oh, one yeah. day. But He's definitely a dream guest, and that is with zero snark. I mean, I... He's a real original in a in a profession that does not have enough originals, I feel like. Well, Greg, I don't know if I can match your aging French aging French voice character. But I, I'm gonna attempt to do a dramatic reading of please, this press please, release please. from Vespertine. Um I, I'm not gonna use a voice, but I, I'm gonna hope that the press release carries it on its mm-hmm, own. Mm-hmm. Okay, ready? Oh yeah. Here we go. Vespertine. From chef creator Jordan Kahn and located in the Hayden Tract District of Culver City, California, is a gastronomical experiment seeking to disrupt the course of the modern restaurant. Disrupt already. We're there. Right right away. It is a place of cognitive dissonance that defies categorization, exploring a dimension of cuisine that is neither rooted in tradition nor culture. It is from a time that is yet to be and a place that does not exist. It is a spirit that exists between worlds, <laughs> a place of shadows and whispers. So it's like, a, so that's it's the, like, it's amazing. That's the first paragraph. There is a second paragraph. So wait, just, um, just before we get into the first, the second paragraph. So the restaurant is essentially a ghost without a home. That's, right. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a wandering spirit that has unfinished business. Um, and there are shadows and, and whispers. So okay, here's here's the second because so so this restaurant is is I want to go to this restaurant so badly. I just I I am almost without words. They they've constructed a building. Anyway, I'm gonna read you this next paragraph. Okay, here we go. The project was conceived as a result of the structure in which it resides. Designed by world-renowned architect Eric Owen Moss, Vespertine is a two-story structure separated into four levels, of which there are no traditional walls supporting the building. Instead, the building is wrapped by an architectural skin, a curtain of undulating steel and glass. The intimate 22-seat dining room sets the stage for an enigmatic dining experience comprised of a succession of 18-plus courses. I love that it's an enigmatic dining experience, you know, it's, there's no way to describe this. (laughs) I, I literally have never wanted to just hop on a plane and go to LA for dinner more than I want to for this restaurant. There's no way this meal is going to be better than the press release, but if it comes, if it comes even a little bit close, it's going to be the best meal of my goddamn life. This is a restaurant that the Eater staff is obsessed with right now. I can't think of any other place that has sort of, uh, except for maybe the the new, uh, the the grill, the the new restaurant, the old Four Seasons space in New York. Uh, Vespertine is is the place that is on everyone's minds at Eater right now because it's just like, what is it going to be? What's going to happen? You know. When was the last time we had a restaurant that was that was this? I can't think of a word that's not judgmental. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last time I can think of a restaurant that was so incredibly self-seriously dedicated to insisting that it is not a normal restaurant was that place Romero. I, I knew you were. That's what I was going to suggest. Yeah, it was that place Romero in New York. 
which was a 2006-2007 restaurant in in a hotel in Manhattan that was open for like a hot second, and it was run by a Spanish neurosurgeon who developed a molecular gastronomy hobby and decided that he could use your food to change your neurological state, and he called it neurogastronomy, and it was... You and I have discussed this before. It was, I think we both agree, in the history of shit shows, the biggest shit show in all of New York. Yeah, it was just um, it was just kind of like one of the like I I was lucky enough to actually go there. And um, what what an honor. It was an honor. I was dining with uh, New York Post critic Steve Cuso that night and he didn't like it as much as I did. But um, maybe because I didn't have to actually write anything about it. But like uh, it was like that that experience where in the middle of it, you're like, this is like um, it's a restaurant because they're serving me food. But it is a restaurant in no other, by no other categorization, you know, by no other classification. It's a, it's a delicate, very dangerous high wire act, really. Yeah. To like, to, you know, cause man, Vespertine, I, I am nervous about this restaurant, well, but I hope it does well. Listeners at home, if you guys run into some spectacular pieces of, restaurant or food promotional text that you would like to hear us dramatically read on an upcoming episode of the eater upsell drop us a line at upsell at eater.com and greg and i will will bust out our character voices and ap dan will pick some very good background music and we'll do some dramatic readings In the Eater Upsell Studios right now, we have Jenny Britton-Bauer. What is your official title? How do you describe yourself? When you put your name on your business, you don't have to have a title, I think. You're just the thing. I mean, uh, it's really true, and I do a lot of different things. I and mean, of course, I'm the founder of the business, which means so much, and I'm sort of the one that came up with the vision, and understand, And I still protect that, like, understand what American ice cream truly can be, or my idea of that, and, which is where we're headed, our North Star. But also, you know, yeah, I'm the one that knows how to make ice cream in our company deeply. So I train a lot of people how to make ice cream to help. Um, I do everything, you know, I mean, a little bit of everything, except HR, finance, although those things I use as resources, and I love that too. But um, yeah, I'm kind of like the preacher some days and cheerleader some days. and you're, you're the Jenny. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's like chief creative officer, which make, makes it sound like I'm sitting on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I mean, I know like chief creative officers actually do work, but I think compared to like I don't know, CEO or something like that. It sort of sounds like, can you just do that with your, I don't know, beer on, on a beach somewhere or something like that? You know, sometimes I feel like, what does that even mean? So Jenny's, um, Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream is tremendous. It's huge. You are in um, eight cities. You have your scoop shops. I was counting on your website right before you walked into the studio. You have 30 locations of your scoop shops right now, which is massive. I know. It's so wonderful. And I've been making ice cream for 21 and a half years. And so, um, you know, it feels so, I, I love our shops. I mean, I love making ice cream. But the reason you love making ice cream is because you love serving it to people. And, um, and it's, it's just, it's wonderful. And I just feel like it our, you know, I love to hear you say it because our company to me feels really tight and really small, you know? And then, uh, I don't know. I can sort of see it through your eyes a little bit, too. And like, see, like 30 stores is a lot. I mean, it is a lot. It's a lot. I just went to yeah. uh, I just went to the Los Feliz location on Mother's Day because my wife is a big fan of your ice cream and I am, too. And uh, I got to say, it it doesn't feel like a ice cream shop that has 29 other sister locations. I mean, it feels like a neighborhood 
hang. You know, and I, I think that's because we do all of our, I mean, for better or for worse, we do all of our art and design on my little tiny team, too, including store, all the finishes of the stores. And, uh, you know, I love to get into a neighborhood that I really love genuinely and meet people and, and talk to people and walk the, the neighborhood and, like, um, sort of design stores that fit in. And also, you know, we don't have, like, we don't have a cookie cutter kind of store and we don't have a very big budget for stores. All of our budget in our company is in our ice creams and um, with our partners who are making or growing the things that we're working with. And um, and that's really fun to me. I think that's true creativity is finding out how to like figure out like what does the store already have that's really cool that we don't so we don't have to mess with it. And we can then put money into other spots. So you have to get in the store and really know and understand each store in order to do that. And that's exactly how we do it. And I, it's part of the So fun. what are the basic things that each ice cream shop needs to have? Like, obviously, you need a freezer, but, like, what are the things where if you walk into a raw space or you're shown, you know, some real estate listing for a commercial storefront, you're like, okay, that'll work? Well, um, well, let's see. I mean, it has to have room for a back a back room, a back area, because we have to have ice cream back there and dishes and things like that. Um, and then a front area, we love to have it if people can queue up and there's a back door, like a, an, a separate exit, which almost never happens. You have to be on a corner and, you know, get... The, permit from the city to build another door. Oh, so it's like in one um, door, out another door kind of thing? That works great because then you don't have to go swerve back around and get out the front door with the same small door. We also love to have like a double door if you can't have that, which doesn't always happen either. These are all permitting from city kind of things that you can either do or, or, or not. Um, we love to have, uh, you know, we have to fit our ice cream dipping cabinets in. So there's a certain amount of length that we need, whether it's vertical or horizontal in the space. Um, doesn't really matter, but... Um, yeah, there's there's a you know a few things, but we're looking for like 1,200 square feet, eight, 800 to 1,200 square feet, and those are actually remarkably difficult um, sizes to find that are plumbed and ready for a food business. It's pretty mm-hmm. small. And so you guys make like the base of your ice cream. It's all in Columbus, Ohio. Is that the case, or are they? Uh, made we actually make all of our ice creams um, in Ohio, okay. and um, and we don't have one base. We have. Many, every ice cream is, to the extent that it needs to be, a different recipe that supports the flavor that it needs to be. I mean, this is what happens when you start in art 21 and a half years ago, go into ice cream and, t- and you just think a lot about flavor and what, what American ice cream be from a flavor perspective, but then become a scientist over time. Now we're making ice cream where we're like taking milk apart, whole milk, raw milk, and turning it into ice cream, putting it back together as like almost like a cheesemaker would make cheese. And f- building most of the body and texture through the way that we handle the proteins and so on. And then each flavor has a different set of needs depending on what it is. I mean, chocolate dries out the ice cream in an extraordinary way. And so in order to make a chocolate that's really, really, really deeply chocolatey with the chocolate that we want to work with, the fair trade amazing chocolate, we have to know how to build elasticity through the molecules in another way. And um, anyway, so it's quite a process. It's not a an ice cream base that we're adding flavoring to, which is how everyone else does it, um, which is a really fun way to do it, too, and how I had to do it in the beginning, too. But, you know, you can do that in any back room. You can train anyone to do that. But the way that we do it is very different. It's much more as like a cheesemaker is the only way that I can put it. So it's more in that direction. That sounds very like a lot of details. That sounds like way more scientific. I mean, I don't know anything about it's ice cream making. It's very complex. But it sounds like a lot of information there. 
Well, and the interesting thing, too, when I got into AI, I knew nothing about it. I thought I knew more than I needed to know, which was obviously, like, completely wrong. This was 21 and a half years ago. But um, but the great thing about—the interesting thing about ice cream is that you can't, like, learn to make ice cream anywhere. Like, there's there, like, there are—you can go to universities and learn how to make ice cream in their, in their ag college. And we have one at Ohio State right down the street from me, and I've spent a ton of time there. Or Penn State or Cornell, or you can go to um, Italy and learn from the great gelato masters. Um, or you can go to— um, um, cooking school and you can become a chef and you can learn how they make ice cream in restaurants. And those are all very different from how I do it, you know, because we're, we don't, we're not making ice cream for a long chain of, um, of logistics. We're not making ice cream for 20th century freezers anymore at Jenny's. We're making ice creams for the 21st century freezers, right? Which sounds, which I just love to say, it sounds like we should be in like Silicon Valley or something, but it's really all about like, what do we, what kind of ice creams can we make now and how? And what do we? What tools do we have and what advantages do we have now that we didn't have before? And one of those is home freezers actually really do get to below zero pretty much everywhere now. I mean, even my friends in Brooklyn, who most of the time would have those frosted over freezers, they all now have pretty decent freezers. Now everyone pretty much has a freezer that works. So we can make ice cream very differently, but not. But that's not happening yet. It hasn't trickled up because the other, the, the large, bigger marketers haven't asked for it. And so the universities really aren't doing it. That's interesting. I never, I never would have thought about that. There's so much, and and there's so much yet for me to learn, which is why I'm just so jazzed about it even now. Like, I'm, we're we're so much on this, on this. I think the beginning of this. We ran a story on Eater a little bit over a year ago about a, a woman who was running her her family's generations old dairy farm. And she was telling us when we were reporting the story that she took an ice cream making course at Penn State, which blew my mind. And I remember when we were kind of fact checking the feature, we, we were getting in touch with Penn State to find out the details on it. And they were telling us that it's one of their most popular courses and I think is possibly the only one that exists, like the only ag college that's actually teaching people who are in the dairy business or, or interested in getting to food production, how they can actually make ice cream as a commercial yeah, and, product. Um, for most of that, the history of their um, school, it was all about, you know, the big ice cream plants, you know, people who were, were going to lead those plants would go take the class and not entrepreneurs. Um, and I was, you know, one of the very first, I mean, Ben and Jerry's went through it too. So they were, you know, on this as well. Um, but, you know, in the, I took it in 2000 and it's just like all, um, ice cream science and math and the equation of ice cream or whatever. And it's all the same. And the Penn State ice cream course is uh, is amazing. And it's all the sort of, it was built for sort of plant managers. I mean, originally, and I think they've tailored it now more for entrepreneurs because it's, um, it's I mean, people are getting more into ice cream making now. And, it, and it's the sort of think like a molecule kind of course. You know, you l- really learn the sort of um, how to make commercial ice cream, you know, there. Um, and they have some incredible scientist Dr. Roberts is there running the program. He's awesome. Um, who can help you sort of, you know, with specifics about how, what you're trying to do or whatever. But, um, but there haven't been, traditionally there weren't weren't as many entrepreneurs going through it, um, as there have been recently. And I know that they've reached out to me and told me that they've got just so many now getting into it, which, which I just love. I mean, American ice cream is really having a renaissance. That's the, the second or third time you've mentioned the idea of American ice cream, which is something I'm really interested to dig more in on. What do you mean by American ice cream? I have this North Star, this vision of what I think ice cream can be, and it's all about, okay, I think American ice cream is the best in the world. 
and we're going to set the standard for it. And this is like something that's been my mantra for a long time. And, um, and so defining what American ice cream is was important. And for me, for me, it was American hard body ice cream. So I think of like the Haagen-Dazs store that I grew up with or the Baskin Robbins that I grew up with, where you walk in and they, um, scoop a ball of ice cream, put it on top of a cone you walk down the street on a hot day and it sort of slowly melts as you lick it or whatever, not soft serve, which I also love. And it's also American ice cream. So I think of American hard body ice cream to be more specific, um, which I also love, of course. Um, and then of course there's gelato, which is softer too. So we're talking about, a an ice cream that has that's that's frozen hard and even aged because actually spices and certain flavors develop over time um, that way as well. So it has and, and then a higher butter fat than say soft serve or gelato. It seems like being in the business of ice cream is in many ways also being in the business of nostalgia. I think for so many right. folks, like I mean, once you're past probably like much younger than you are when you hit nostalgia for other things. Like, I feel like I started being nostalgic for the ice cream of my youth when I was, like, 11. And suddenly, like, I was remembering, like, the plastic cups of ice cream with the wood scooper spoons that we used to have in preschool. I mean, there's something so deeply connected in our brains between ice cream and nostalgia. And so much of the nostalgia that so many Americans have for ice cream is about these mass produced goods. Like we have this nostalgia for like the stamped sugar cones and the like super, super industrial maraschino cherries and the whipped cream from a can. How do you balance that out? Well, I mean, one thing about nostalgia is that it's all about scent. I mean, not all about scent. Scent is one of the greatest. I mean, when you have that sort of memory association through scent and most of flavor is scent um, and ice cream is just even like even cheap ice cream is is like, I mean, you can you could think of it as an edible perfume, which is how I got into ice cream in the first place. I mean, even cheap vanilla, vanilla is a flower and it's a scent and we're scenting butterfat as ice cream makers. And so um, and so just thinking of it that way that like it really is, you know, your olfactory is so close to your brain. And like there's something about that, too. And of course, this incredible texture um, that that's like melting and blooming. I agree. And then, of course, you're with family and you're with you're doing fun things whenever you're eating ice cream. There's a reason that you're associating these scents and these flavors with those good feelings. Um, But I'll tell you, like anything that I do and I I mean, of course, I've made the craziest ice creams because I've been in I started my business in an indoor public market with 60 merchants selling all sorts of different things from meats, cheeses and wines and everything. Everything in that market went into ice cream at one point in my (laughs) career. Right. And I've learned that just because it's surprisingly not bad which you can make anything into ice cream and it is surprisingly not bad doesn't mean it's actually good and i think one of the um one of the telltale signs of a really good ice cream a necessary ice cream an ice cream the world actually needs is that it does have some kind of nostalgia to it that it's not just a flavor out of nowhere we all have to have it has to be somewhat connectable i mean i always think of creativity as in the box thinking not outside of the box because if you're outside of the box you know you're irrelevant if we can't connect it somehow to something that we know then we can't then we're then we're not then there's no connection to anybody you I know th- i think i see what you're saying about your flavor i mean the ones i've tried but like for example i recently had cocoa curry cocoa mhm mhm so how is that connected to like a nostalgia? Well, and I think that's funny because it reminds me of candy bars that I had when I was a kid. Yeah, it's like a um, you know, bar. It's got, yeah, it's got fenugreek in it and fenugreek has a strong maple scent. And, um, uh, and it's very, it's the curry we use is very sweet. Um, so it, it actually like works in this really crazy way. And it totally, if you closed your eyes, you might not immediately say, you wouldn't probably say it's curry. You know, I mean, it's definitely a spice blend, but um, 
and it's just yellow curry. It's like just, you know, regular old yellow curry. It's not, it's not the, we didn't blend it ourselves or anything for that reason. It was like this, I don't know. I love that kind of curry. But that's actually also um, a part of a collection of ice creams that we just did for spring that was, it's called We're Not From Here. Some, we don't always give our collections a name. It's, I mean, we, and I know it's kind of cheesy, but, like, it's part of the fun that we have. But the idea was We're Not From Here, and the other f- side of it was But You Belong Here or Just You Belong Here. And uh, it's all about what does it take to get to know somebody across that barrier. And the idea of something on the outside is often, um, you know, the things that are unfamiliar on the outside are often very familiar on the inside. And so there are other flavors in that collection, like Osmanthus with Blackberry Crackle, and osmanthus is a flower that we steep right in the butterfat and in the cream. Um, and it ends up tasting and smelling a little bit like a peach. So you get like this kind of peachy ice cream with blackberry uh, crackle, which was made for us by um, Jamie Curl over at Quinn Candy in Portland. Um, and it's like this peaches and blackberries, which are, you know, in season at the same time in the summer in Ohio and, and lots of places in America. And, um, you know, a nostalgic flavor together. That also seems like a fairly political theme for a line of ice creams to sort of speak to the notion of inclusion and identity. I know, but I can't help it sometimes. Oh, I mean, this <laughs> I is the place for it. I think if you can't sell some politics with your ice cream, how else are you going to get it to people? Well, and also bringing people together. I mean, that's what ice cream does. And and so, you know, without offending anyone really, I mean, but saying, look, we're, we're actually have more in common than we have than, than not. And so, um, that's it's important and over ice cream we can have conversations uh, about everything and maybe maybe this is a time for an ice cream maker to step up a little bit and you know i mean i, I mean i i'm not shy about it at all really and um and and in fact this summer i put an american flag on the top of all of our pints and we do all of our art and design in house on my team so every time we make a new flavor art and design follows and we do the pints and we do photography and all of that stuff and yeah put an american flag there we felt that you know um I don't know. For me, I just felt taking a little bit back, you know. Yeah. But have you always involved politics in your ice cream? I've, I've always involved my opinion, <laughs> and um, and and in and, and never really wanting to be, I mean, to offend anybody. I, I've never wanted to. I've always wanted to be welcoming and open and kind to people. Um, but but it is. But I am making ice creams from my perspective, and. Uh, and I think it's important. I think it's important. I mean, I, you know, yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, you know, I haven't always had to or had an, op- an opinion about politics. I mean, I've always had an opinion about <laughs> politics, but I've never, I haven't really always had to feel that I needed to express myself in that way. But yes. Did you have any backlash to the you're not from around here, but you belong here collection? Um, uh, none. No. None at all. Um, That's great. Wow. You know. We work on the internet, yeah. so we we don't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Backlash. Well, and I don't, daily. I mean, you know, so far nobody's been all over my personal, you know, the Jenny Instagrams or whatever, which, which they could do. And, and maybe one day that'll be a problem and it won't, I don't have to deal with it. But, you know, I don't hear about if there is, I don't, I don't look at that because it can be paralyzing. And so this afternoon I was reading about, uh, I guess you would call it a nonprofit that you are now involved with, or I don't know. Which one? <laughs> well, uh, the good fights. Oh, the good fights. Yeah. So what is that? Could you, could you I mean, like it's a group of friends that? who uh-huh. were like, after the election, we were like, what are we going to do, you guys? What has happened? And, um, and it's, um, and, and all of us thinking, where did we go wrong? What, ha- like, what, what are we doing wrong? Not like, what are we doing right, you know, necessarily? And like, what can we do better? And, um, 
And so so it's very loose and and it's evolved into this great Instagram um, that that um, Kate and Maisie do. And it's then it's brilliant and wonderful. And I love what they're doing. Um, and they just had an event on last Sunday on Mother's Day. Um, but but I feel like the idea is just we needed to come together and feel like we, you know, we had a, a group that could make change and, and maybe support each other and like try to figure out. And everybody in the group felt like we needed to figure out how to reach out and uh, and really be good listeners and um, and and just figure out what the next things are. And so, you know, it's only just been a few months and I think everybody, like everybody feels sort of still, everything is still kind of coming together and um, weird right now, you know. And so we're just trying to figure it out. Well, that's really cool. I mean, I feel like since November, everyone's just kind of trying to figure out how to how to heal. I mean, honestly, I, I how to how to heal the divide, which I, you know, coming from Ohio, don't I don't have the same view about about it as people on the coast. I think. I mean, I I I know so many people who are just wonderful and um, maybe are are lost too, and on the other side politically as as I am, and you know, I, I just I feel like like strong voices of, um, of love are needed, you know, and, and openness and tolerance, you know, and anyway, there's a lot of work to be done and, and maybe we're just in the beginning of that now. It's interesting because yeah, obviously as a restaurateur, as someone who invites people into your business, I mean, you have to be very, you have to be inviting and and welcoming of people. So, I mean, that, that just seems like an interesting, there are certain boundaries or something, you know, like if you want to, be about politics as a business person. I mean, it sounds like you still have to find a way to be inclusive and, and, you know, maybe invite people in. Yeah. And, and I, you know, Jenny's, the company does not believe the companies should be political. Right. You know what I mean? It is like, that is just off the table. It's off the table. We have people who work in our company who aren't the same, who don't share my beliefs politically, but we do believe that individuals, um, to, to the extent that they want to, and, and we hope that they do, do participate in, in, um, in civil society and everything that's going on and, and do have opinions and are flexible enough to make, to change that opinion and to sort seek answers and to, and to find and be a part of the solution and not just, you know, cause one thing I cannot stand is just standing around and complaining, right? Got to get proximate. You got to get into it and actually solve it. You can't watch the news and complain too much. I mean, that's fun, but only for a little while. Why do you think that Companies shouldn't be political. I mean, the the, the corporations, the company. I, 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 that's our belief that that our company shouldn't, you know, Jenny's ice creams shouldn't come out and support something or a candidate, you know. But the individuals that make up Jenny's ice creams, very much should. It's just it's just something we've always felt. We just don't feel that you know that our company should alienate people that way or or whatever. But that is individuals. It's part of being an American. How do you draw that line for yourself as? as the Jenny whose name is in Jenny's ice cream. And so you can try to keep the company itself apolitical, but you clearly have, you know, activist inclinations and a political perspective and you're very vocal about it. Are you careful to draw a line between Jenny, the person on your half pint of ice cream and Jenny, the person who is, you know, calling for action? Well, and I feel like most of the things that we've done as Jenny's can be interpreted in different ways. I mean, the idea of a collection, we're not from here. Everybody's sort of feeling that in a way. Every single person in America didn't was was upside down, you know, after the elections, even the people who voted uh, in whatever way you voted. And um, and this idea of, of feeling that you walk, everybody can relate to a feeling of walking into a place and feeling like I'm not from here. And um, and then what happens? 
And then what happens? Do people in the room say, but you belong here? Do people make you feel like you belong there? And that's what that's the important thing. And that's not that's not actually very political. It was it was the right moment to have that discussion, but it, it could have been at any time. It's really about belonging and and how to what what does that mean? And then also the same is with the flag on top of the pint. I mean, I grew up in a very, very patriotic family in the Midwest. And, you know, it's like the flag is an incredible symbol um, for all Americans, you know. And that's that is really what it's about. And ice cream, maybe it brings people together. Um, my own views um, always are about, I you know, like we all do. We come from a place of love and 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 bringing people together. And and I am reading constantly about 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 what it is to be an American. I mean, I read this incredible speech by Frederick Douglass on the Fourth of July, eighteen fifty two, and it was. And it made me realize, you know what? I mean, I, I sort of felt like I knew it as a woman and, a, and, and having watched Hamilton and all this stuff that America, you know, is, has maybe changed. Or what I realized reading this incredible speech is that America has never, never been the story we were taught in school. And this is like growing up in a patriotic family I, who was also kind of left-leaning. But, but um, you know, I, I have a lot to learn about what America is, and I take that very, very— very seriously. And I want to know and I want to be open to all interpretations of it. So, uh, Jenny, I can't believe we've gotten so political here. Oh, <laughs> it's so funny. You know, it happens on <laughs> it happens on the eater upsell. You know, yes, I love it. It. people are always talking about the, these issues now, which is a good thing. And oh, also I wish we didn't yeah. have to. I don't know. Thing. But, you know, it, that, though, yeah. it actually leads pretty directly into something I wanted to ask about Jenny's as a corporation, which is that Jenny's is a certified B Corp, which is, I think, super fascinating. Um, a, a B Corp, if if our listeners aren't familiar with it, is a certification that a company can get from in, this independent nonprofit that basically identifies a corporation as one that is not entirely motivated by profit, but is motivated by notions of social good. Um, so, what drove you? That to... That is an excellent way to, oh, to describe that. Yeah. <laughs> so, what 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 drove you to to decide that you wanted your company to ha- to be a B Corp? Well. Um, First of all, I feel like we raised the company that, I mean, sometimes I think of it like we built the company you'd build if you if you were 12 years old and you built a company the way you thought everybody build, built companies, right? And so we just didn't, you know, we didn't, not that going to business school is a bad thing, but we didn't go to business school to learn how to do it. You know, we just started doing what we thought you should do. And we were in the market and we were learning from these incredible merchants there who were, and, and we were very, very connected to our community and our growers and all that. And we wanted to make this specific kind of ice cream. And honestly, I started making ice cream the way that I thought other people made ice cream and that wasn't even true. And so, um, so, so I, in many ways it was like, let's just see if we qualify you know, because we were doing it the way that we wanted to do it, the way that motivated us, the way we thought it was fun. And um, and with, I mean, with almost no changes to anything that we did, we already, we, we, we got through that incredible, you know, audit of whatever it is. It took like eight weeks to get through it and like 350 pages. It was like they went through everything um, in our company to figure out if we qualify. And, and we did the first year we did it. And so we've just been keeping that up. And it's an incredible, it's an incredible certification, I think. I think it means something. It does, but it also strikes me as something that is itself kind of inherently political. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I, I think that that business and entrepreneurship, I, can, I think it can be an incredible force for good. I've also started nonprofits, and I think, and I even even in starting that nonprofit, I thought if we can make something and sell it, why wouldn't we? Like, why wouldn't we build our own resources? 
You know what I mean? We've got chefs here. We've got talent. Why wouldn't we make something people want to buy and then use that money to do something awesome with? Like, why are we going to ask people for money and build a whole team that's going to do nothing but ask people for money? If we can make something that's going to make somebody's life better or easier or whatever, sell that, make the money, and make and do something with it. So business is just such a cool thing. And, uh, and I guess that's just where I came from. And I don't know that I think of it as um, necessarily political, e- you know, from, from my point of view, even if it, even if it is. Did you somewhat. ever, like, have inclinations of being an entrepreneur with a capital E? as like a young person, as a kid or as a teenager. I mean, it seems like you've taken a, a small business and spun it off into this this big thing that is more than just a business. Was that always the intention? Was that? Yeah, I well, I when I was a kid, I um, that was how I played. So I, I grew up in a very non-traditional family. My We had one rule in my house that I can remember, um, which was that we weren't allowed to do homework. Well, like we really weren't. And we moved every single year and I was a very big introvert. So like going to school without your homework is like, I mean, it kind of does something to you. But I, but I, I got through K through 12 without once doing homework. I did projects and I sometimes read books. Um, but instead I would, my mom loved it when we were wandering around the neighborhood doing something. And for me, it was, it was making businesses. My one grandmother is an artist and she would teach us how to make something, a basket or whatever. And we would like pick um, weeds out of the ditch and dry them in the sun and dye them different colors and make a basket out of them. And what I loved to do is build process around the basket. I still love it. I wanted not just to make one basket, which Enid, my grandmother, wanted to do one because it was art and then she wanted to make something different next time. I wanted to make 40 baskets that all looked exactly alike. And I wanted to have three people doing it. I wanted to teach them how to do it and have their baskets match mine. You know what I mean? And like that was always the fun thing. Whatever it was, I was playing restaurant as a kid. I wanted to make 40 menus that each of them looked exactly the same without a copier machine. And I wanted to make sure that I could teach people how to do that. And that was like something that that my sister and I did in every neighborhood we lived in. And we moved almost every year. We would organize the people in the neighborhood to come work and do stuff, you know. But um, but I feel like in many ways, and I say this sometimes, that I like I was never forced to be anybody else. So I grew up into the only person I could have been, which is the only person I ever was. And I see people who grow up, I know it's like, but I see people who grow up and they get to these moments and they're like, okay, now you're an adult. And okay, now you're ready for this. And okay, now you have this. And and the problem is you're never actually, I don't know, maybe maybe you do, but for me, it seems like I never, like, I'm like, I never hit any of that stuff. And, and, <laughs> and I'm just doing the same stuff I've always done. It's the same exact thing I've always done. I was born to to do that. And once I figured out ice cream, once I m- blended the idea of art, pastry, and perfume together, those three things that I loved, because I was already doing them so much, I just loved doing those things, I knew that, that American ice could be, could be so much better. Hey, I'm going to cut into our conversation with Jenny Brittenbauer for just a second to check in with today's advertiser. This episode of The Eater Upsell is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking way more fun. So you can focus on the whole experience, not deciding what to have and torturously dragging yourself to the grocery store and exhaustedly coming home after work and looking at your bare cupboards and feeling terrible about who you are as a person and your failure as an adult. Instead, with HelloFresh, you can get a box that arrives right on your doorstep with pre-portioned ingredients for fresh delicious meals, including vegetarian options, and now they also offer breakfast. I have used HelloFresh a whole bunch. I especially like it on those nights when I am exhausted, like the ones that I just talked about. It's really great for me and my husband to just sit down and 
make a really easy, really, really delicious dinner and spend time focused on the good part, which is sitting together at the table and eating together. If you want to try HelloFresh, just check out HelloFresh.com and be sure to use the code EATER30 for $30 off your first order. So how do you feel about the sort of new American ice cream explosion that you're a part of? I feel like Jenny's, Salt and Straw, Van Leeuwen, there's, it's never been a better time to be an ice cream eater in this country who's like interested in expanding your horizons. Yeah. I, mean, I think you're probably one of the OGs of that movement, right? I mean, I mean, I don't remember any, I don't know anyone, I mean, before what we were doing. I mean, I know that when our book came out, suddenly we had like people all over the country doing it, which is absolutely amazing. That was the whole kind of in a way point. I, I love it. Like for so long in my, my career from 1996 to, you know, 2007, 2009-ish, 2011, like there was nobody else out there. I mean, it was like me and the the cookies and cream kind of world or whatever. And um, and I I actually really thought that people would pick up on it a lot faster and that it would be a lot that the trend would build faster. Um, but I think one of the reasons is because I was in Ohio and nobody noticed for a long time until I started getting like James Beard Awards and New York Times articles and stuff like that. And then um, and then it began to shift. But for most of the time, it was like there wasn't anybody else out there. I mean, I made salty caramel for for eight years before it showed up really anywhere else. So two years ago, you had something happen to your company, which is pretty much, I imagine, lurking always if you run an ice cream company, the thing you're afraid of, which is a listeria recall. Mm-hmm. You guys were super proactive about the messaging and the recall and very clear with the communications about it. And you were very open about all the processes involved and how you guys were taking the actions and stuff. I'm I'm just kind of curious, like what did you learn as a business person, as an entrepreneur from that experience? Well, I mean, so many lessons, you know, when you, when you get in, first of all, it's like that, you know, you would never wish crisis on your worst enemy, but it's like one of the, it's not tragedy, but it's one level above, like you're, you know, you're in this place and you learn so much in doing that and what you're capable of and what's possible and about community and about all these things. And you come out this incredible, like a totally different person. And I really feel that that about what, what, you know, what we did all together, which was really fun. I think that, and, and like every, you know, we, we learned so much, but I maybe think that from a food perspective, the one major thing I learned is that, um, you know, first of all, it's maybe the biggest, I mean, it is the biggest issue in our food, food world right now. I mean, it, and it should be, and it's, um, and I don't think people talk about it as much. We talk, we love to talk about provenance of ingredients and we love to talk about handmade and we know to talk about all these things, but but safety is not discussed, and it's not discussed amongst entrepreneurs either. It's not discussed really back of the house. We all what we do, and what what we did too, is you get your your certifications, you get your audits, you sign up for audits, you get people to come through, and you think that when they sign off of it, then it's great. The problem is, and this is what I learned, is that if you if you want to do something new or new old, I mean, let's say you want to make charcuterie that's based on the 1870s variety that you know. And now you want to bring it back. Well, what you have to do, which has not been done since at least then, and maybe it wasn't done the way that you think it was done anyway, what you have to do is put safety on that same line. So you're innovating. um, You've just rocked the world of charcuterie or ice cream or whatever. You want to bring an entire field of fresh strawberries just straight from the dirt into your kitchen? Well, nobody else is doing that. So nobody else knows how to deal with that. Not your ag inspectors, not all of the people that you can hire to bring in because nobody knows how to do that. You now have to become the expert in safety, right? And that is not easy. That's not easy. It's not just enough to get your license. It's not enough to follow what the rules that exist are. You actually have to innovate, right? You have to, you have to really get it. And, um, 
and I and that's my message really to all food producers that that um, especially in like the, what I sort of in quotes say the good food world. You know, I mean, we really want to make good food um, available to people and and make and make these products out of this and great from the farm ingredients. But um, we well, we got to get our safety game in a huge way, and I just uh, want to see that more openly discussed. Did you think you uh, lost some customers there, or you know? Do you think your you think your brand suffered a little bit? I mean, it, I would assume it would have to. Especially, but it, do you think you've won it? It happened at the, roughly the same time that there was a huge listeria scare with Blue Bell, right? The industrial right. And, all, ice cream and those two folks. stories could not be more different. You know, um, you know, I don't. I actually feel like if anything, we gained, and you know, maybe you know, maybe there's a net gain or something like that or zero or something. But, but I really do feel like we came out ahead and, and, um, and now know so much more about it. And I think we've built, I think we always had this sort of transparency and this trust from our, from our community. I think of a company as a community, including our customers. And, um, and I think that we solidified it, if anything, you know, one thing that consumers don't need to think about, don't care about is just how much work we put into safety anyway. And there's, it's still hard. It's still a risky thing to do. Making food is a risky thing to do. And, um, and, and I feel like we, we really gained a lot of trust. I really do. And we get emails about it all, all the time. Still about the listeria. Yeah. Yep. About uh, for people who are like, um, who, who just were so happy that the way that we handled it or the way that we did it or whatever. And seeing, um, you know, I mean, you know, and it happens all the time. Recalls from Listeria are just constant. Um, but the, you know, they're, you know, just having that game and, you know, when you, when you learn about Listeria, you realize you have to be a Listeria hunter every single day, that it's not a one thing. So now we have the highest, I mean, I don't know any other ice cream company that tests every single batch before it goes out, you know? Wow. So we're just like, all right, we're not going to lose this battle again if we can help it. So every single batch that goes out. But I mean, you know, that's part of our, our regular game now. It's part of the game. So mm-hmm. 30 ice cream shops, man, that's a lot of ice cream shops, but a lot of them opened what in the last seven years, something like yeah. that. Yeah. I would say about uh, 20 of them opened in the last seven to 10 years. Yeah. How come we don't have a Jenny's in New York? Well, um, I, uh, I don't know. New York is a, sort of, is a different kind of animal. It's a different kind of beast. I would love to be in New York. And, um, you know, the funny story is that I almost started in New York in 2002. My husband, now husband, um, almost took a job with the Mellon Foundation. And at the time, I was working on getting my business back up and running, and I would have opened in New York. And, you know, what I always think about that is how would that have changed the American ice cream game if we'd opened in 2002 in a high, higher-profile city? You know, it would have been... I think I think it would have had a different. First of all, I would have failed miserably, um, so it might not have, it may not have been noticed. Why at do you all. say that? Um, I just had a lot to work out. Like you know, there's just it's not. Um, I just had a lot to to work out from um, just how to make ice creams. I mean, I was still you know in 2002 still working on some of the flavors and some of the recipes from my first business, and then uh, and then building on that, and then also just everything from training and managing a team and all of the things that you need to, you need to understand to have a business and pay your rent. I guess. And New York is a fairly expensive place to try to figure out what the hell you're yeah, doing. Maybe the most. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like the Jenny's presence is felt. I mean, in New York, at least yeah. my favorite when I lived in Brooklyn, always had like six different kinds of Jenny's at the little local organic store I would go to. And 
Oh, there's so many. Yeah, there's so many. And we've been selling um, ice creams in, in these smaller shops in, in Brooklyn and Manhattan, you know, since mid to I mean, you know, 2006, seven. I mean, I created my first ice cream label to be a Dean and DeLuca, um, I think in 2006. And then it was Foragers and uh, Green Grape Provisions and um, wow, Brooklyn so Fair and all of those. Dean and wonderful. DeLuca, huh? That was the first that was the first retailer. Mm-hmm. They have launched so many amazing brands. They do. They do some crazy. Like they were an incubator before there were incubators, I feel. Yeah. And they're very supportive, very very supportive of the brands that they work with, and it's pretty cool. It's another very strong brand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what is the most popular flavor? I would guess it's salty caramel, but I, maybe not. It is salty caramel and uh, is ubiquitous as it's become. But ours is made, you know, I always say caramel is is one thing. It's caramelized, right? And um, and it's hard to do it that way. The it, sugar burns at almost 400 degrees. You put co- And we do dry the dry burn um, technique, so when we put the cold liquid cream into this bubbling hot, um, dry sugar, uh, it just explodes, you know, and so it's dangerous to do it that way. The other thing is there's only about a two second window when it's right. And when you hit it, it's, and you get it right. It's like an emotional, like the flavor is emotional. It's like, it's, it's a thing, you know, and you can't reproduce that in a lab. You can get a vanilla close enough that it'll actually win a contest but to a real vanilla, but you can't do it in a lab. And so I always say a synthetic caramel tastes like a gas station latte, <laughs> you know, that sort of flavor. It's like really buttery hazelnut vanilla coffee flavor to sort of mimic what a caramel is. Um, but but most ice creams and most, you know, are made out of a, a caramel flavoring because it's too hard to get it right to be consistent, to do all the things that that as good business as we want to do with a caramel. And so, um, but ours is still made the same way only by a few people in the company who can actually do it besides me. And so it is really a special, special caramel. All right. Well, Jenny, we have reached the portion in our episode that we call the lightning round. Here's where AP Dan inserts our lightning round music. Um, And to ask you some lightning round questions today, we have Eater's Features Editor, Matt Buchanan, who is a big ice cream fan. And Matt's actually here. This is so funny. And I'm like the worst. So it's cool. It's um, low pressure. Don't worry about it. No, it's it's great. It's great. I mean, like, I don't know what will come out, but you know, it's funny as an introvert, like most Uh of my life, I will sometimes get in front of people to speak and like nothing will come into my head. Like I can't (laughs) connect my brain to my mouth sometimes like to get something out. Um, And it's just nothing. And yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, oh, I recognize him. Hi. Hi. So, number one, why did you rename the Buckeye State your best flavor to boring salted peanut butter and chocolate flake? Yeah, thank you. I didn't want to do that, but um, but it was it's the flavor that we got the most emails about and the most um, the people people talked the most about, not knowing that there was peanuts in it. And I just thought everybody knows what, what Buckeyes are, and uh, so they don't. So we're gonna try to go back to AKA Buckeye State. I feel like we need to give a little bit of background to our listeners who might not be familiar with what the Buckeye State is. Yeah, the Buckeye State is peanut butter chocolate ice cream, and it's like this incredible peanut butter made by, it's like roasted down the street from us and ground for us, and it's really smooth and creamy and yummy, and it's like just ground peanuts and amazing. But um, And the Buckeye State is also Ohio. And the Buckeye State is Ohio, and, and Buckeyes are candies that are like peanut butter cream and confectioner sugar or something like that dipped in chocolate balls that should look like Buckeyes. And um, you get them everywhere in Ohio, every gas station, every grandmother's house. Everywhere. People give them to you as gifts all the time. It's what you do. Um, so the Buckeye State was for that. It was also for me like a, a play. You know what? You just convinced me to take it back. I'll be like, whatever. But um, the other thing about it is I went to Ohio State University, which is like 
you know, we're Buckeyes. It's like the Buckeyes, you know? And I was thinking, like, you know what? My Buckeye state of mind or whatever is art and art history and dance and all the things that they do there that has nothing to do with football. And uh, so it came from that place, too. Now we're changing it back. Thanks. <laughs> Wait, you are, like based on this conversation, yeah. the lightning rage? Just- <laughs> yes, yeah, because no, I affected I, I, change honestly, on a large scale. You know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I like somehow we just got it. I mean, yeah. So was it like the peanut issue? Was it, yeah. You, I mean, it was literally like everybody like, you know, they're like, if you don't change, if you don't make it really, really clear that there are peanuts in this, you're going to be um, in big trouble when something happens. You know, what about just in par- a parenthetical contains peanuts next to it? That would be a really good idea. <laughs> I don't know so why I didn't think of that. Today. I don't know. It was just like, OK, I, you know, I didn't for me, I didn't think, I, you know, most of my life I've changed things whenever I felt like it. You know what I mean? Like that was just how I did it for like the first 15 years. Nobody was watching my company or how I did things at all. And it didn't make any difference. And so, um, and so now it, now it, now it does. Now we're you know, watching I gotta it like get a used hawk, to it. Jenny. I know. Yeah. And, and you know, you know, so, and especially when it's a good one, you know? Yeah. So. Cool. I know some Ohio natives who are very I know, upset. right? No, I know. It was like, <laughs> yeah. So they were like, Jenny's is selling out. I know. And it's it. really, you know, there's just a lot as a food maker and all food makers out there will relate to this, but there's a lot you have to think about as a food maker. I mean, there's so many allergies and some of them we can do easily. Mm-hmm. They're just easy to knock off this gluten. We can take gluten out of almost everything we do. We've, we've really tried to, to do that. Um, lactose is obviously not going to be easy for us, right? I mean, we can create another flavor or maybe a plant base, which we're working on, but like, you know. Um, but something like peanuts is an easy one that we could do. That was just like, okay, that's an easy thing. And so for us being bombarded by these, by this allergy thing, which is like every and or intolerance and or whatever, um, and or just preference, I mean, whatever we get bombarded with it. So for us, it was like, this is actually an easy one. Let's do it. And so for us, we weren't thinking so much of the creative, creative stuff. And, uh, and I think a lot of food makers will relate to that. It was just, it was just not something that we thought people would care too much about. Okay, Matt, what's your next question for Jenny? All right. What's your favorite flavor? And you can't say all of them. Oh, I wouldn't. Um, I have favorites and least favorites every day of the week. Um, but my favorite has my actual all time favorite has always been our lemon buttermilk frozen yogurt. Um, I just never get sick of that. And also every time I, I put our ice creams for years and years since, you know, f- since the 90s when I first started meeting chefs and whatever, every time I put our ice creams in front of um, a chef or somebody who knows food, they they gravitate toward the yogurts, too. And yet our yogurts are not the most popular flavors that we make, but not, not by far. I mean, I think people get scared off by yogurt, especially, you know, we started making it before the pink berries of the world started and, and all of that. And I think, and then of course, after TCBY. So I think there's just this like idea of what frozen yogurt is and we're mandate or we have to call it frozen yogurt by the FDA. So there's nothing, nothing we can do about that. So it's buttermilk frozen yogurt. I wanted to call it yogurt parens frozen because that's what it is. Um, it's real yogurt. I mean, it's actually really, really beautiful yogurt. Um, but anyway, so it's yogurt, cultured buttermilk, grass pasture milk, cream, and uh, fresh squeezed lemon and some lemon zest. And it's just like, I mean, I love it. On a, sh- on, a yep. on a wafer cone, you know, the cake cones, the flat ones, Those are the that's the one I love. All right, Matt, what's, uh, you got another question for Jenny? Yeah. Uh, what's the weirdest flavor you've ever, uh, Jenny's has ever put out? I mean, I, it's funny because I don't think any of the flavors are weird. We were talking about this earlier. They all go back to some kind of nostalgia or something that we do. So for me, it's like, I don't really think of it that way, but I think, um, I mean, I mean, we've done, you know, meat flavors and fish flavors and those don't work. They didn't work for me anyway. And, um, foie gras and various cheeses and, um, smoked bananas, which was 
really gross. I mean, it was awful. Smoked bananas. <laughs> well, I'm and I over-smoked them, uh, so they were like turpentine. imagining what that would taste like. Well, it tasted like turpentine. It really did. It was terrible. It was just terrible. Um, uh, maybe like the, uh, one of the most interesting that I think is our absinthe with meringues. And it was um, it was in tribute to Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, that um, 100-year anniversary, which I think was in 2012 or 13, 2012. And, um, but it was really cool because the, 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 the piece of music is, um, it, it really turned off the, the rich people and the Bohemians loved it. It was very different, you know, and Stravinsky was like that or whatever. And there was like a riot. And so the idea in the, in the ice cream is that the absinthe is the sort of, um, the poet, the Bohemian, the free thinker, the moving forward. And the meringue is like the rules and the rules can't change. And so we actually hand-piped thousands of meringue kisses, teeny tiny ones. And what happens in the ice cream is over a few days, they disappear, which is exactly what happened in real life. I mean, until November. The Bohemian I don't know. artistic uh, element will versus rise the rules. and crush the bourgeoisie. I, yeah. I didn't know ice cream could have that much context, and I'm sure that some people— <laughs> Really, must that must have blown their minds? Yeah, and you know, like we never make like it like we're going to jam cream. that down your throat. Like, oh, by the way, you got to listen to this whole thing before you eat that ice cream. It was never like that. But for me, I do think that when we when we have that kind of intent and motivation behind it, like we make better ice cream. I can't believe that you made an ice cream that like literally represents the overthrowing of the bourgeoisie, and yet you claim that Jenny's is not political. But I'll allow that. Uh, that's, so the right of spring though, is, you know, yeah. I mean it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the the and freedom and what does freedom mean? Okay, so now we're doing it again, but whatever. Yeah, I love it. I want uh, I want every every dessert um, to have a story like that actually behind it. You know, you know what it does though. I'll tell you, it slows you down. I mean, and so if we can if we can slow you down and extend time for a second, that's like that's like magic, and you can do that when you're in the moment when you are paying attention. That moment is extended. The memory of it is extended. The actual moment's extended. And and even physics tells us we can expand and contract time and that in that way. And so if we can do that a little bit through a story and through and, and a real story and actual the 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 wherever the flavor came from or wherever the ingredients are, what we taste in the flavor, like it's cool. Um Matt. Any more questions for Jenny? Yeah. Uh, how long before we get to twenty dollars a pint ice cream? It depends. We're trying to get we're trying to get lower. Actually, we're trying to go lower through volume and through working directly with these growers and all of that stuff, and then also create like a sort of separate thing. So I think I can make we can easily make a twenty dollars pint ice cream right now. But yeah, will people buy it? That's the thing. How much do do pints of ice cream cost on average these days? I'm I, I feel like this is now that we are at the tail end of the of the episode, it is time for me to admit that I don't really like ice cream that much. So I don't know. So you're how not much. paying ten dollars a pint for an ice no, cream. No, I, I, I feel like an, I'm like an out of touch politician who thinks a gallon of milk costs either fifteen cents or thirty five dollars. Like I literally have no idea how much a pint of ice cream costs. Yeah, around ten dollars is like is the thing. I mean ten, twelve dollars, you know, we're we're twelve dollars um and we want it, you know, we're working on getting it to 10 and even, even, you know, for some, you know, it used to be in the early days when I was making ice cream, some flavors were um, lower and some were higher. And so I think going back to that a little bit is really, it would be great because some of them take a lot more effort and ingredients to make certain ingredients or whatever, and, and others don't. And so if we can go back to separate, like cheese shops do, I mean, no, you know, even a cheese company, each cheese is a different price because it's got a different amount of labor and a different amount of whatever. So we're going to try, I think we can go back to something like that, which helps a lot. And then, um, you know, we can have, yeah. So 
separating it, I think, is important. We, is switched- there like a consumer threshold, like price wise? You think like is it that thing of like, oh, steaks are forty nine dollars because like nobody wants to pay fifty dollars for yeah. a steak. You know what though? I think a lot about you know I still think about Haagen Dazs and like I love Haagen Dazs ice cream. And you know what? If you can't make better ice in the Haagen Dazs, go home. You know what I mean? Don't don't go charge ten dollars for ice cream if you can't do that. And so I, I like. Like, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like, how much can we charge for it? I totally, you know, I think, like, there's got to be a, a good a good reason, and it isn't just a wacky flavor. You know what I mean? I mean, that's fine, too. I mean, I don't care. People are buying it. You do what you want. But but I don't think that consumers are that into, like, you know, okay, so you got to brand a wacky flavor. But, like, what? who are you and what you're doing? And, like, is the ice cream actually worth it? So, I mean, I think a lot about, like, our coffee ice cream is just so, so good. And is it really better? And is it really worth that? And maybe not every day, but maybe some days it is. Yeah, Jenny's is like a treat, you know? I mean, that's how it's treated in my household. <laughs> it's like how many licks does it take? Is it are in a pint? It's like the, how many licks to get to get to the inside of the Tootsie Roll Pop or whatever? Um, how many, you know, how many licks? I mean, really, for ten dollars. I mean, it's you're getting a lot of licks, and every lick is worth more. <laughs> how many licks are in, in a pint? Ice creams. Yeah. So no. Jenny's pint has sixteen, hundred and sixty licks. Let's say no, uh-huh. I don't know. Um, and they're good licks, every single one of them. Long, good, satisfying, deep. <laughs> okay, this is a I'm weird place. This <laughs> a weird place we've we're gotten in. We somewhere. Go to a, uh, another. I, I always um, find a way to make it weird. In the, the no, no, uh, it's not you. It's me. It's no, me. No, it's, it's it's not it's you, Jenny. Us. Yeah, okay. Um, good. It's the magic of the eater upsell. <laughs> yeah, um, Matt, uh, do you have a final question? What's the number one thing you hate the most in high-end ice cream right now? Silence. Um. The one thing that I hate, I, I mean, I just said it, you know what? I, I don't think that I just don't like the sort of shock value flavors or whatever. Like you got to really think about, is this worth what it takes to make it and what people are going to pay for it? And, and and again, like don't care if people are buying it and you got your thing going, good for you. That's great. Don't stop. Don't change anything. But for me, it's for me, it's like uh, I just I see a lot of flavors that don't need to be, exist. Like what? I don't know. Sauerkraut or some shit like that. I don't, it's just not, you know, some kind of whatever. I mean, you know, again, I really feel like anything is shockingly, you know, can be shockingly not bad in ice cream, but is it shockingly delicious? That's different. So it's funny. You're like, here we go. We've got this kimchi ice cream or whatever. And you taste it and it's like, whoa, that is not, you got to try this. It's actually kind of good. But that is not the same thing as being really, really delicious, deeply delicious. And yeah, you know, so I don't know, but you know, hey, if it's it's if it's working in your right. business, I'm not there to tell you not to do it. I don't care. It's got to cross Good for the you. uncanny valley into full deliciousness or something. I mean, at least for me. I mean, that's for yeah. Awesome. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on the Eater Upsell today. I had so much um, fun. Thank you guys. And if our listeners are craving ice cream, they can order pints of your ice cream at Jenny's.com. J E N I S. Or find your books on Amazon or at your local independent bookseller. Or if you live in one of the eight cities that happens to be lucky enough to have a brick and mortar Jenny's in it, you can stop by for a scoop, right? Yeah. Where else can folks find you? Well, I will tell you that that, um, now I'm not selling the ice cream, but I'm selling your ice cream. You can make my ice creams in my book. I got the James Beard Award because the texture and the body of the ice creams that you can make on a little machine at home is really great. And you can have the same fun that I have every single day. You could probably even find the recipe online, honestly, if you don't want to buy it but it is really fun and uh and you can tell your own stories through that and that's the whole point cool well jenny thank you so much for joining us as always upsell consumers if you have not already subscribed to the podcast please hit subscribe on your listening device if you've subscribed give us a five-star rating on the itunes 
on the Apple Podcast Store and tell a friend or two about The Eater Upsell because your support and your likes and your faves and your subscriptions are what keep the lights on here and what let me and Greg have cool conversations with cool people like Jenny. I think that's it. Now we go to the credits. Jenny, thanks for joining us. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.